Welcome to the Portrait Detective podcast, where we dive into the collections of the State Library of New South Wales to discover iconic images from Sydney's past. I'm Cassie Gilmartin, editor of portraitdetective.com.au, and I'm here with Margot Riley, curator at the State Library of New South Wales, co-founder of Portrait Detective, and an expert in fashion, history and photography. Yes, I'm really looking forward to discussing this uh, image, Cassie. It's one of my favourites and it was a bit of a library discovery for me. Fantastic. I can't wait to get started. Today we're talking about a very fashionable lady from Parramatta who posed for a beautiful portrait in 1865. And for everyone listening, you can see the image we're discussing by tapping the link on your phone at the bottom of the podcast homepage or visiting portraitdetective.com.au forward slash podcast. Fashion trends certainly had an effect on what Australian women wore in the 19th century, which is surprising given how long news from other countries and fabrics and patterns took to get to Australia. So, Marga, how often did fashion change in Sydney? Well, I think it, it probably happened faster than we imagine. Um, the real, only real time lag was the time it took for, took for a ship to sail from Europe to, to Sydney. And also we'd had the benefit of being close to Asia. So we had um, access to, you know, fashionable silks and muslins from India and China probably sooner than uh, people in Europe as well. And it also helped if you had fashionable friends or family uh, to shop for you uh, back in in civilized in the civilized world. <laughs> and I think one of my favourite examples about this is uh, the story of Mary Putland. Mm. So Mary Putland was the daughter of Governor Bly. Governor Bly, when he was offered the the job of Governor of New South Wales in um, eighteen oh six, his wife decided she didn't want to go on this great long sea voyage. She didn't like sailing. So she sent her daughter with with um, with Bly. Um, she kept, travelled out to Australia with her husband, who was um, Bly's aide-de-camp. They arrived in Sydney in about eight, in August uh, 1806. And, um, and there are descriptions of the day of how fashionable Mary Putland was. Mm-hmm. And within the first weeks uh, and, and months of settlement, uh, a package arrived for Mary from England and she wrote back to her, her sister in England to say, oh, this dress is fabulous. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's like nothing else in the colony. And rumour has it that um, Mary wore the, the new dress to church and st- stunned everyone because she being having just arrived from from Europe she was very up to date in her style of dress and at this time it wasn't common for women to wear underpants now I know that sounds shocking <laughs> but it just wasn't uh, at this time women wore layers of petticoats and chemises mm-hmm. and it was at the beginning of the 19th century because dresses became very light and very sheer that they uh, fashion was developed for pantalettes so a mm-hmm. tube of fabric that went over one leg initially they were separate mm-hmm. so you put one tube on tied it around your waist put the other tube on and tied it round the waist and there was an opening um, at the crotch, mm-hmm. as you can imagine. Right. So this is what Mary Putland was wearing under her new frock when Good she Lord. went to church one Sunday. Oh, and it is actually recorded that people were, you know, 
giggling and, you know, reacting to her in this sort of outlandish and very modish outfit. How funny. We just couldn't resist telling that story, could we? Because no. it's such It's one a, of our favourites. Yeah, anyway. it's such a great story. And it shows how um, important fashion yeah, was, how much exactly. it was talked about. And, and people say that it, it was sort of part of the downfall of Bly from the Rum Rebellion because mm. right from the beginning there was this sort of sense of ridicule that was mm. happening and Bly being a very serious man and very serious about his, his very authoritarian, to have his authority undermined by people laughing or, mm. you know, making snide remarks about his daughter who was the governor's lady, it sort of got the whole thing off to a bad Everyone start. talking, yes. So fashion, the downfall of, <laughs> of Bly. Of who Bly, knew? who knew? <laughs> Well, well, let's fast forward to uh, 1865, uh, six decades later or so, and we're talking about this very fashionable young lady. And I, I want to know two things, first of all. What's the first thing you notice when you look at this portrait and why is it iconic to you? Well, I think um, the first thing I look at is that I don't know who she is. I don't know her name, so I really have to look at what's going on in the picture. Mm -hmm. Often if you know who the person is, you immediately start telling yourself a story about them because you know something about them. Um, what also too, I notice that she's full figure and that's really important because so often in the 19th century, we just have an image of a face or it's a seated portrait, which doesn't give you mm. nearly as much information. Mm. So when I was planning the portrait detective, I was really determined to choose images that recorded as much information as possible uh, and something that would give you a sense of the overall appearance of the person. So these were really the things that I first noticed about this picture, head to toe, and it's a knockout um, in, in terms of, of a head to toe image. Fantastic. Um, the other thing is that it's, um, because it's a glass plate negative uh, and it's uncropped, it actually, it's the the full frame as it was shot at the time in the 1860s. It really shows you the details of the studio setting in which the photographs was taken. It shows you that there was a, an array of carpets and backdrops that a client could choose from to actually uh, create the right atmosphere. We don't perhaps understand that, that there was, mm -hmm. you know, you were commissioning an image, uh, either the photographer could decide help you decide and say, oh, no, I really think you should look, you know, where do you want to be? Do you want to be standing on a veranda? Do you want to be in the, you know, in a, in a lounge room? You know, what kind of image do you want to to um, portray? Um, and in this case, there's also an example of posing furniture. Uh, people often, because they had to stand still for, for, for a while and, and not move, beyond having uh, a clamp that was behind you and actually clamped you at the neck to keep your head still. Mm. Um, women in particular, to show off a full skirt, would often be standing next to a chair and they'd be able to rest their arm on the back of a chair so they could, you know, there was no movement. And, and in this case, uh, over, the, over the chair, the sitter has dra draped a cloak, which also tells me perhaps that rather than um, borrowed garments, because in some instances, if people didn't have their own clothing that was fashionable enough, 
they could borrow mm. from. So that was another mm -hmm. illusion yes. that we need to be careful of when we're looking at images from the 19th century. Perhaps this is a bit like a photoshopped image or mm. a fashion magazine mm. ideal. Um, but in this instance, I think because the cloak is there, it suggests, and because we do have that full head-to-toe look that all matches, I, I feel, I really feel instinctively that these are her own clothes mm -hmm. uh, and that she has put this um, look together herself. I think part of that is the fact that it's taken in Parramatta. Mm -hmm. I really don't think Mr. Bergen had a suite of mm -hmm. um, a wardrobe <laughs> hanging in the back of his <laughs> Mr. studio. Mr. Bergen being the, the photographer. photographer yeah, because as I say, um, this this negative comes from a collection of images by a very early Australian-born photographer, um, William Bergen, who was actually a watchmaker with a part-time practice in photography and the studio was just behind his shop in Church Street in Parramatta. Right. So this is what I was saying about a, a, a discovery for me. This was a collection of um, both glass negatives and visiting cards and this glass negative uh, for this image was part of that uh, production, mass production of images. Mm -hmm. So from one negative, hundreds of images could be could be printed, mm. which dr dramatically brought the price down. And they were modelled, the style was modelled on a visiting card. So just a small cardboard mm -hmm. um, backing that a very thin paper print would be pasted onto. Mm -hmm. and, um, and these really... Like, Hundreds of thousands of these were produced because, of course, they could be mailed off to anywhere around mm. the world mm. and the price dropped dramatically. So mm. really, um, this was the first time we have a democratic form of photography where almost every class of, of person could afford to have a mm. photograph made. And I just want to pick up on the background as well. You were saying how interesting it is to see almost behind the scenes of a working studio. Definitely. Why... Why do you think that uh, is left in the image rather than, you know, having a, a proper backdrop, so to speak? Well, I think part of it is focal length because mm -hmm. he was an optician and it's a beautiful image. It's mm. so well focused. Mm. So he would have had to be back far enough to get the perspectives right between mm -hmm. and the separation between keeping everything in focus. And, um, and, of course, in making a print, he would crop all of that out. Right. So, okay, so you the negative, see you know, that. and the negative mm. actually gives you much more information mm -hmm. than the cropped image would have. So that's another reason why I love it. And we are very, very fortunate that because we have an archive from the Bergen studio, which is a mix of negative and the um, visiting card prints, we really do get to see like a cross section of the types of of clients that came to his studio. And that's why this one really resonated. It just stood out because the quality mm. of, of her as a, as a subject and a mm -hmm. sitter, as opposed to just, you know, your average Paramatons with their, you know, the undertaker and the, mm. you know, the, the normal family, you know, within their black frocks and the, you know, three little boys. And yeah. she was just like, oh, heavens, you know, <laughs> wow. <laughs> And this photograph is significant for a number of other reasons, isn't it? The 1860s were really a pivotal time for fashion in Australia. First of all, the sewing machine was invented. That yeah. must have been a really big advancement. Oh, yes. You know, it was one of the trans transformative technologies of the 19th century. It really revolutionised the textile and clothing industries and it changed the nature of women's work in the home. 
And, uh, you know, Australia was very early in adopting the sewing machine. Um, we we had sewing machines advertised in Sydney from 1860. And were and they made here? No, they would have been imported. Um we eventually we had um, outlets for the Singer sewing machine, but the first ones to be advertised was a brand by the name of Wheeler and Wilson, and uh, and within a year they were available to country customers. And the Bathurst Time was claiming that they were so reduced in price as to be within the reach of all classes. Mm. So that was important. Mm. And at this time, companies like Singer in America were producing about um, 13,000 machines a year. And they had established a market in Sydney by 1864. So... This image, I think, is taken about 1865. So certainly by this time there would have been sewing machines um, in, in Sydney mm-hmm. and they were being advertised in um, the Illustrated Sydney News, mm-hmm. uh, a great ad which says the cheapest, most durable and best sewing machines in the world. And they had, and by the 1860s, uh, mid-1860s, Singer had branches in Australia, agencies in mm-hmm. Australia. And I do want... One one quote that I loved was um, a woman called Ruth Sutter who writes to her sister in 1862 and she says, Sewing machines are getting very general. They are a grand invention. I shall never be content to stitch, stitch, stitch again. They require great attention. You really ought to get one. <laughs> Some ladies have them who will never be able to do with them what I see under skillful hands that they can be made to do. So there you are. How's that for an endorsement? Yes. And and how would that have influenced this image that we see here? Definitely uh, because of the, the construction of the garment. Mm-hmm. Um, the, at this time, skirts were very full and so they required lots of lengths of uh, loom widths of fabric that would have to have been previously hand-stitched. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine how labour how labor intensive mm-hmm. it was to actually create that volume of skirt. And also in this image, there's a lot of material in the sleeve and that's all been ruched. So that could be done with a long stitch on the sewing machine right. and all of the ruffling. So that would, again, previously would have to have been hand-hemmed and then hand-gathered. Um, All of that could be done on the machine. Mm, so Revolutionary. Made it absolutely. And, and, you can, and it actually influenced the look of a garment. Mm. If you could do these things easily, then, of course, they would be introduced mm. to the look of the garment. Yes. And the second significant moment, is the invention of synthetic dyes. And I love that you've said to me before about this image that this dress might have been a bright red. I mean, mm. you look at it and you think, oh, it's 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 black, yeah. but it, yeah. it could have been a really lovely bright red mm. or purple. Purple. I think that's, that's the other thing because this at this time we get the invention by uh, Henry Will, William Perkin of what was known as Perkin's Purple or the fabulous Mervine. Um, <laughs> it was actually invented in about 1856 um, and one of those happy a- accidents, he was actually trying to uh, create a cure for malaria. But it came up with oh. with purple dye instead. <laughs> I don't know how that works. I really don't. Uh, and of course, purple was it was very fortuitous because purple was probably the most prestigious color mm, that yes. you could ever um, have. It was a sign of aristocracy mm. ever since ancient tri- times, uh, and it was the most labor intensive pigment to extract from for a nat- from a natural um, dye. Uh, and often it was poorly. Um, it was. It didn't. It didn't. Wasn't color fast, which it washed out. Mm-hmm. So um, the the synthetic p- uh, purple 
was very fast and it's dyed silks incredibly. So you got this beautiful, deep, dark purple. Mm. Uh, it became incredibly popular. Uh, it was adopted by Queen Victoria, Empress Eugenie, wife of Napoleon III in France, and certainly with the, the, the arrival of the crinoline, so the very big hooped skirt, mm-hmm. you know, it was a fabulous display, area, area of display for this stunning purple colour. And as I say... Um, that it dyed silk really well, and it um, and it really lasted. Uh, and amongst other dyes, because it wasn't only it was purple was the first, but soon after there was um, um, alizarin red, which was the brilliant red, carmine, crimson kind of a colour, and also Perkins green. Oh, right, two colours under his belt. Yes, it became very very famous and very very wealthy. Mm. And you would have seen them on the streets. Oh, definitely. And actually, if you go, one of the things I loved about um, working when I did my um, master's degree in America, I got to see a lot of collections in America. And um, I think collecting in the Northern Hemisphere extraordinary examples of uh, from this time and the, the number of extraordinary purple garments that mm. are in museum collections. Mm-hmm. If you have a chance, let your fingers do the walking and type in Perkins Purple and have a look because they are truly, we, we see black and white images and we imagine that the colours were quite sober. Mm. They were not. Incredibly vivid. Incredibly vivid. And some crazy colour combos, what what they would might put together, which we might not imagine. <laughs> Uh, and at the same time, couture was becoming relevant. So, and so too were ready-made outfits. And we touched on the shape of dresses were changing, but explain that a little bit more. Yes, well, you know, this is the time where we get the emergence of couturiers like Worth in Paris, in France. Uh, and he was dressing Empress Eugenie. And he was the one that um, started offering seasonal styles, uh, introducing particular colours and shapes, um, which were then followed by fashion houses, other fashion houses around the world. So, you know, it was that idea of of, of fashion being set from a central place and then rippling out. Um, And this was all communicated by fashion plates, which were beautiful um, engravings that were hand-coloured, and again, they offered this head-to-toe look, which is another reason why this photograph caught my eye, because she she looks like a fashion plate, and I Mm. do call her. She's like my my photographic fashion plate. Uh, And the the beauty of the fashion plate was it was in colour, and it gave you the idealised look and head-to-toe. So you saw all the different elements. And also, probably more interestingly, the setting. So it wasn't – it was aspirational. Mm. So it, it's not just a person in a dress. They're sitting in a garden or they're, you know, visiting a friend or they're at a ball. So you get to see other things, the furnishings or what other accoutrement they might have. And uh, we've I've included fashion plates in the Portrait Detective series because I wanted people to see that this is what would have been mm. inspiring, um, mm. you know, women in Australia. And like we do today, looking yeah, at magazines, just like, it's the same thing. Yeah. Right? And, and fashion plates often came in magazines. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they were also available loose. So when you went to the shops, if you went to the dressmaker or the haberdasher or the milliner, they would show you fashion plates and you would make your choices and you could trim your dress to your taste mm. based on these things. Um, and some of the magazines also included patterns. This was really the beginning of, mm. of the commercial pattern. So you could see the picture, you could see the, the shape, and then it would actually supply a pattern for you to make it. Because before that, you almost had to have 
something to copy. You had to unpick a garment or, you know, go to the dressmaker and have someone make it for you. So we do start to get this emergence of... um um, of people being able to replicate these these very um, ideal shapes, which is great because it is at this time that we're getting very complicated styles uh, because we get the birth of the crinoline with that very domed skirt. Um, it was actually light, made of lightweight sprung steel mm. by this time. Before that, it had been whalebone or bamboo, various other short um, things. And steel sounds heavier, but no, it, it was very light. Better, it was it, it was mm. very light and sprung, uh, and you know, it collapsed. So when you sat down, it would actually you, you didn't have to sort of it, it sort of collapsed. You it's yeah. hard to explain, but uh, <laughs> and and actually, even though they look ridiculous to modern eyes, the women of the time loved them because it freed them from layers and layers of petticoats which would have been needed to hold the skirt out mm. to that shape. Yeah. It took the weight from the waist and it meant their legs were free. So often I think of things like um, films like Little Women, if you if anyone's ever seen those. Uh, you know, you see those girls sort of running around because their legs were free. They didn't have to worry about the petticoats getting all caught between them. <laughs> so women actually loved the crinoline. Uh, even though it seemed, which is why it hung around for such a long time, mm. a bit like the mini skirt in Australia. <laughs> and all of this plugs into the fourth development, which is the development of the department store and merchandising. Yes, yes. And for the first time seeing mannequins. Yes, in yes. Store. And well, the beginnings of ready to wear. So before that, you know, everything had to be made from scratch. You would buy your fabric, you would have to, you know, sew it all together. But um, by this time, you know, with the rise of the department store, you could go and one department you could buy the fabric, another department you could buy the trim. And in some places you could get, um, you could buy the skirt ready-made because that was a quite straightforward item and then just have the bodice because that was the tricky part to fit that could be done by made to measure part department and as I say the library has in its collection some really extraordinary photographs of farmers department store now that was on Pitt Street so in Pitt Street Mall as we know it today mm-hmm. uh, and where Maya are today that building in the middle of the 1860s was a department store known as farmers and we have photographs which show the the floor the women's fashion department and there are um, tail dressmakers mannequins that mm. actually have ready-made garments inside large great big showcases in the middle of the of the space so and are they dresses similar to what our fashionable ladies wear? Very, wearing? very similar um, because, again, quite plain. So showing off these wonderful um, amounts of fabric. Uh, yeah, so very, very similar, yeah. Mm. And she's wearing a spoon bonnet. Oh, yes, How you yes. referred to it. Tell me more about that. Well, again, I think it's the icing on the cake with this image because the dress itself is quite plain, um, but the spoon bonnet is like the mm. last word. It is so up to the minute. You, would it have been purple? Could well have been. I'm sure there are violets. They would be. If you look, she's got silk. She's got flat, beautiful flowers, uh. sort of tucked into the the inside brim, and and then the ribbon, that amazing ribbon coming down the front. Mm. And again, that's what makes me think that it might be a red dress because the um, the ribbon, beautiful wide ribbon, uh, is ombered or shaded. Okay. So you can imagine that the colour might be shaded from like a dark all the way to a very soft, soft pink mm. across the the bow and. 
again, I'm reminded of the scene from Gone with the Wind <laughs> where um, Scarlett O'Hara gets the fabulous green bonnet yes. from Rhett when she's <laughs> supposed to be in mourning and she's <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> ties it on. Very so, funny yeah. scene. What I also love about it is that it makes me think that our, our um, fashionable lady from Parramatta, she's either on her way somewhere or she's come back from somewhere. Ah. Because if you look with the spoon bonnet, because it's, it goes up high and it exposes the forehead, you can see she's got a suntan line. Mm-hmm. So she's been somewhere where she's had a different shaped bonnet right. that's protected her forehead. Travelling possibly? Possibly. Mm-hmm. Or alternately she's been on a property, maybe on the goldfields, mm-hmm. and she is coming back into Sydney and mm. maybe she's this is a brand new outfit that mm. she's this is her first chance to take it out of the box and put it all on wow and, and it's it's summing up that decade of change in fashion as well mm. progress one image. excitement yeah. yes and also you know Australia was a huge uh, land of opportunity the gold rush was like winning the lottery. Mm. You know, people flocked to Australia mm. because it was the one opportunity that they had for really changing their, their personal circumstances. Mm. Not all of them found gold, but there were many other um, entrepreneurial opportunities. Including photographers. They went out to, to the gold fields. Indeed, they? and they, they certainly cleaned up, I yeah. think. Well, thank you uh, for talking us through this image. It's been terrific to understand more about it and, and the context of why it's so important mm. and why the 1860s were so important as well. Yes, I, I, I always wish I could I could go back in time and find mm. out just how close my theories are yes. to reality. <laughs> you know, how close to the truth am I in unpacking this image? I know. I guess I'll never lovely. know. <laughs> oh, I think you're on the money <laughs> myself. Well, thank you, everyone, for being with us today on the Portrait Detective podcast. And we should add that this finishes season one of The Portrait Detective. So thank you for joining us. We'd also like to send out an enormous thank you to the State Library of New South Wales and Create New South Wales. Without them, we couldn't have made this podcast. I'm Cassie Gilmartin. And I'm Margot Riley. For more of our work, head to portraitdetective.com.au and discover the resources we've put together to help you discover more about your own portraits in your family collections. Mm-hmm.